Hey listeners, are you ready for 2022? I know I am. And of course, we know that you have been enjoying our podcast, but don't forget we have one hour webinars, visual webinars on our website, www.ozarkinstitute.oncospark.com. In 2022, we will be bringing you a new season of webinars, so check out these titles. Introduction to ICD-10-CM, ICD-10-PCS, Surgical Guidelines and Structure, the Inpatient Billing System, Risk Adjustment Models and Policies, Make Prior Authorizations a Priority, Spine Coding in 2022, Prepare for 2023 Evaluation and Management Changes, Dissecting OPA Report and Payer Guidelines, Coding Vaccinations in 2022 and Beyond, Wound Care and Repair, Fracture Care and 2022 Guideline Changes, Ophthalmology and Otology Changes in 2022, and of course, a full webinar on the 2023 Coding Changes. We hope you'll join us for our next season. Step on over to www.ozarkinstitute.oncospark.com. Have you heard about our Patreon account? Jump on over to www.patreon.com slash lifeasacoder and check out our membership. It's a great way to support the show and help us to keep offering great topics and episodes for coders and healthcare professionals just like you. We have three membership levels. We have our all-access, VIP, and of course our basic membership. We hope that you'll enjoy signing up for one of our memberships and support us in 2022. We have a lot of great content coming your way and we hope that you will also send us requests and your questions that we can answer right here on the show. Thank you for being a loyal subscriber and member of the Patreon squad, and we look forward to offering you a lot more content and information in 2022. We'll continue to offer all of our members CEUs for becoming a member and subscribing to our membership at Patreon. We'll also continue to do shout outs on the show for those of you who are members. We will give you, of course, exclusive blog content and other benefits as we announce them throughout the year. So jump on over to www.patreon.com slash lifeasacoder or visit our website, www.lifeasacoder.org. We'll catch you on our next episode next Wednesday. Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series brought to you by Ozark Institute, an initiative of OncoSpark, a technology-enabled revenue cycle management company discussing your life as a medical coder, offering tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday. Hello and welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. My name is Jennifer McNamara and I'm your host today. Our goal is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management, as well as tips for work-life balance. If you're a first-time listener, we thank you for listening today. And if you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Our disclaimer is that, of course, our podcast is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It's based on my close to 20 years of experience now in the coding and billing industry, and my goal is to share with you what I've learned and why I love this industry. Today, our episode is episode eight. We're in season four. Hope you've been enjoying this season so far. 
Today I wanna to talk about something that's really important uh, for us to say compliant. And so we're gonna talk about how to stay compliant with copay collections. Fun stuff. Now I know that this is a topic that many of you may or may not um, be aware of that is a compliance issue. There are things that we have to understand whenever we accept an insurance from a patient or we enter into a contract with an insurance company. So I'm going to start out pretty basic today. I'm going to talk about, first of all, I'm a big definitions girl. So let's get down to the definition. First of all, what is a copay or a copayment? Well, you may have heard the term cost sharing. So this is basically exactly what it sounds like. The insurance company is sharing the cost with the patient, right? They have entered into a contract together. The insurance, of course, has a policy. The patient needs that policy to have that coverage. And so it benefits uh, the, the patient and the insurance company. So the patient understands. They take out that policy. They understand when they choose a policy, maybe there's something that they have, a condition, and they have to see the doctor regularly. So they may look at different plans and look at their premium amounts. The premium, of course, is the amount that they have to pay monthly to have the policy, right? And within that policy, let's say they pay three, four, five hundred dollars a month, they can choose what uh, benefits or options they want to have. So maybe they want to have a copay because that means every time they go and see their primary care physician or PCP or a specialist or any other service that a copay or cost share would apply to, uh, then they would pay that fee every time, right? Um, and they understand that. Then they understand there are certain services in that policy that are outlined where they would have to meet a deductible first. So that is a set amount of money annually that has to be paid uh, before they will start the cost sharing, before they will start paying their part. So the patient is basically liable or they're responsible to pay that deductible, depending on who they pay it to. As long as that gets paid and it's reported to the insurance, they know, okay, you've met your end of the bargain, you've met that deductible, and now we will enter into a cost sharing relationship. So whether it's 80-20, 70-30, however it works out. And then, of course, as I talked about previously, sometimes there are these out-of-network um, benefits that they have. So if they go see a provider out of the network, a provider who is not contracted in that network, hasn't entered into an agreement um, or isn't an in-network provider with that plan, then, of course, um, they may have to pay 50%. So they pay a little higher rates than they would if they had chosen to see an in-network provider. And of course, that provider, of course, understands that in his or her uh, contract with the insurance, by accepting that arrangement, being contracted, there are certain things they have to understand. So they are agreeing to collect copays and deductible and coinsurance. All of those things the patient is also aware or should be aware they have to pay. The provider is also aware that as part of that contract, they know that's a responsibility for us taking assignment of benefits on that they will, of course, uh, follow those guidelines. And just to reiterate uh, real quickly, some of the services that you could expect to pay a copay for, like I mentioned, were, of course, your office visits with your primary care physician, and that's, of course, for non-preventative care. Uh, most plans um, have a preventative care option where they don't have to pay anything up front. It's included in their plan. They, they pay $0, and the plan reimburses the provider at 100%. And then, of course, uh, the specialists' um, prescriptions do often have a copay. And of course, not just office visits, but some types of therapies like physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. 
You may have co-pays for mental health in office visits, maybe for psychotherapy uh, uh, or drug counseling, um, and also ambulance or ER services. A lot of times on your insurance card, you will see for certain types of services, you will have a copay that you have to pay for the ER, or maybe you have a copay even to the facility. When you actually go have a procedure done, the facility, of course, has their own fees. So you, of course, pay a copay to the doctor. They order surgery, right? You check in at the hospital, and that person that checks you in says, okay, you have a $100 or a $200 copay for your hospital stay. And so you have to be aware of all the different things as you're reading that policy, as you decide what policy you're going to get. You look at all those things to decide which one is in my best interest. Am I going to use this, right? So am I going to be going to the doctor regularly enough where it's going to benefit me to um, have this type of benefit or, or this type? So am I going to want to pay $35, $45 every time I go to therapy if I go three times a week? Or if I be going often enough and I'll meet my deductible quicker, right? Then they're going to start paying 80% or maybe 90% in some cases of my service then I'm going to want a different kind of plan. I'm not going to want a copay plan. I'm going to want, of course, have deductible. Maybe it's a $500 to $1,000 deductible. So once you meet that, they start paying more, right? And then once you meet your out-of-pocket, right? So out-of-pocket, what's that? That's another term you might be familiar with on your plan. So out-of-pocket maximums, how do those affect things? So this is basically a cap, right? So they're going to cap the amount, the total amount in full, like at the end of the day, if you meet this amount, then after that, you no longer have this cost sharing. They're going to pay 100% of your uh, services. So maybe it's like $6,500 or it's $7,000. Sometimes they're ten dollars or $15,000. If you have a surgery and you end up meeting that, you, of course, have to pay the facility or the doctor who, of course, took assignment of benefits for you. But once that's paid and it's reported, they can now show you've met that out of pocket and then any future claims, of course, will be paid at 100%. So those are all things you wanna be aware of. So when you go and shop for an insurance, decide, do I wanna pay a copay every time I go do anything? Or do I want to look at, am I going to be seeing um, a provider, have procedures, I know I need to need this done, am I gonna meet the deductible or possibly even my out of pocket maximum in that calendar year? And is it gonna benefit me in that way? And the same for me, like usually I look at things, I look at things that my husband and I need to have done in a certain year and I do some calculations, I write things down, I look at my previous year, how many times did I see the doctor? And then you want to factor in, of course, things like emergencies, you know, you, you can actually, of course, have an accident and things could happen. So you definitely want to account for those things and be aware of that. Um, make sure you know your budget, what you can afford each month, what you can afford to pay out of pocket uh, for medical services before you decide to take a plan, right? And we all need health insurance. Um, some of us have chosen to um, do more of a cash pay option where we just wanna go see a provider and pay pay in cash every time because a lot of times they will give you that, that cash pay discount. So there are a lot of things to think about when you decide whether you're gonna get insurance or you're going to be a cash pay patient. But we're talking today about those of you who do take on an insurance uh, and you do decide to pick insurance and you understand what your responsibility is and what your, as a provider, your responsibility is. So now that I've talked about the patient's understanding of their policy and how the providers fit in, I used that term assignment of benefits a few times, didn't I? So what is that? So this is an agreement, right? This transfers that right, that claim rights and benefits to a third party. So what we're talking about here is the patient is the policyholder, right? 
they have gone into that agreement with the insurance and um, that and then and so now they're saying, okay, I don't want to even deal with filing this claim on my own. Most patients, you know, at the end of the day, they don't want to deal with filling out paperwork and filling out a long claim form. And they know their provider has a quicker way to get the claim to the insurance, right? So they will assign benefits to the provider. So when you go into the office, you have all of your registration forms, you fill out your demographics and the assignment of benefit form, right? And so that's basically telling them that you want to transfer that right that they have to file the claim and you they want you to do it on their behalf. And that will, of course, helps them out. They understand um, all the responsibilities that they have. And by assigning that benefit to you, um, then they, of course, know that you're going to take on that filing of the claim on their behalf. And, of course, you'll get a notification from the insurance that, that claim's been filed. You're going to see the breakdown of the charges um, and also anything. You'll see the payment they made and anything that will be your patient responsibility. So all of that information is sent to the patient or to you as a patient at the end of the claim cycle when it reaches that um of course, payment is going to tell you what you owe, if anything, to the provider. And it's going to mention, of course, if there's any, anything that wasn't paid and why. Now, previously I talked about in a previous episode how to understand an EOB explanation of benefits. Uh, but today I'm talking about something a little more serious when it comes to um, the co-pays themselves and that are their legal requirements for these contracts you enter into. So I really want to Kind of step into that now. So we've talked about what they are, um, how you go about understanding your policy, and then of course we talked about the assignment of benefits. You're now telling that provider you want them to take it on, on your behalf. And so what happens now is that they understand they're now liable to follow the same guidelines and the same requirements that you entered into when you signed that contract or that application to um, have that insurance provided to you. So now they understand that. They understand that they have to collect your copay. And there are lots of rules, lots of things that are out there to understand these things. But I'm just going to go with the basic problem that we see in healthcare today that I've encountered in some clinics when I'm doing uh, provider education or when I'm doing audits or financial, um, you know, health, you know, things for the provider. I'm trying to help them see their financial health and help them do a breakdown of their data, help them understand um, you know, what they are missing annually, what they could be getting. Uh, and then I look at those things. One of the first things I look at is, okay, are you collecting your copays? You look at the financial health of a practice and you see that there are is a routine waiving of copays. That does not sit well because not only is it a compliance issue, it could be a legal issue. It also affects the bottom, bottom dollar, you know? I mean, those are things that you, of course, aren't getting. You're not getting your full fee that you're entitled to by billing that claim on the patient's behalf because you're only getting a part of the service. Uh, you're only getting a portion of it. The patient is required to pay you as a provider who has, of course, submitted that claim for them that amount that is missing. So now there are uh, physicians and practices that have um, been doing routine waiving of copays. And there are reasons that they may think that this is, of course, acceptable. But according to the Office of Inspector General, um, the past special fraud alerts that they mentioned, um, they usually reserve those for national trends in healthcare fraud, um, potential violations of the Medicare and state healthcare programs. 
for the anti-kickback statute, but they have addressed some of areas that they feel could violate the anti-kickback statute. And on the official OIG website, this of course, this hasn't changed since 1994. This has been an issue since 1994, and they haven't updated this since then. It's the same. But it says the routine waiver of Medicare Part B copayments and deductibles. That is something that they have seen as an issue, and it does to them violate or, or can violate in certain situations the anti-kickback statute. Now, according to the official anti-kickback statute, it prohibits, and read this, knowingly and willfully offering, paying, soliciting, or receiving remuneration to any person to induce that person, right, to order or receive a service for which payment may be made under a federal health care program unless the arrangement fits with a regulatory safe harbor. So in other words, there are reasons or specific things that could happen that would be not necessarily a routine waiving, but could fall into, uh, you know, a financial hardship of some kind. Now, there is also a law, the CMPL, and that, of course, stands for the Civil Monetary Penalties Law. And just like the anti-kickback statute, the OIG has said that if it's for financial hardship, a general, uh, genuine financial hardship, they're not going to just come after you, right? There are certain things you have to, criteria you have to meet. You're not basically advertising it, right? You're not trying to solicit uh, the routine waiver just to get business, right? Because that would be a violation. Um, you're not doing it routinely, right? Or writing it off, basically. You're not waving or writing it off your books. Um, and so those are things that you want to make sure you're looking at. Now, there are people that come into the office and they really are, you know, having a hard time and they need that service to get better. And they know they have to come in, you know, more often than they can afford. So there are situations like that. And they even have copay assistance programs that you can offer to help them get in, uh, involved with. So that's something that I will, of course, put on our show notes as well. Um, resources that you can, that you can of course, go to or have your patients go to if that is a true need. And most hospitals have those programs and they, they know how to get access to those benefits for a patient if that truly comes to be the case. Now, back when I was, of course, first in healthcare, my very first job was collecting copays. I was a receptionist in a medical practice um, in orthopedics, and that was my job. I also was the person who checked out the patients. So whenever the doctor sends them out and says, okay, go to check out, and we will, of course, discuss uh, your upcoming surgery. So I checked them out. I collected their copay. If So we had like a chain of, a chain of uh, events that happened. So if the first receptionist was too busy and couldn't collect everything, there was a, in the uh, practice management software, it would tell me if it was collected or not. If it wasn't collected, then I was, of course, the last line of defense. Um, I was the one who collected it if it wasn't collected uh, in the beginning to make sure it was collected. I did my, of course, due diligence, and that's part of a good faith effort, as mentioned in these laws and in, in the uh, OIG statements, your good faith effort to actually collect that. You're doing your best to collect it. Same with surgery collection. So you know ahead of time the patient's going to have deductible and coinsurance. So you calculate that information. You let them know this is what you're going to be um, having to pay out of pocket. And most facilities understand that if they don't collect that before the surgery, chances are it's going to be very difficult to get it afterwards. So a lot of you have a policy out there. 
you're taking it very seriously, this requirement that by accepting assignment of benefits and by billing that claim on the patient's behalf, you are collecting those items that the insurance requires them to pay for that service. Uh, they still have to pay it. So even if you don't collect it up front, of course, you're kind of hurting your bottom dollar by not doing it up front. It's a lot harder to collect, as I mentioned, on the backside. But for instance, even if you have to collect it on the backside, you have to keep billing the patient. That is what you're supposed to do. You have to keep billing them. Send them to collections if you have to, because that's money that you are owed based on their contract, their contractual agreement with the insurance. So when you look at that explanation of benefits, you have the fee you charge, right? You have the contractual adjustment, which is what the if you're in a contract or you're in an agreement with that insurance, just like the patient is, it tells you what you have to write off, what your contractual agreement is. And then it tells you, of course, how much the patient owes and so forth. All of that information is laid out nicely in a legal document. Your explanation of benefits tells you exactly uh, who owes what. And that is, of course, a safeguard for both the patient and the practice. Everybody knows exactly who, who his responsibility is what, right? So that's really a, a safeguard and a benefit. So I really wanted to kind of hone in on that. Now, one area, and I mentioned this earlier, there is a specialty that sometimes gets this um, problem a lot only because they see patients so often. And that is your therapy practices. Now, I work for a physical therapy practice, and I did um, revenue cycle management for a small uh, practice that had, um, you know, three or four therapists. And the patients sometimes would have to come in three or four times a week. And I've done therapy before, and it's difficult, especially if you have a copay and you have to pay $45 three times a week. That's a lot of money. So if you don't have one of those HSA cards you've taken out from your employer to cover that cost... Um, you are, of course, your budget is going to suffer, right? If you're paying co-pays. So sometimes, and this happened in this practice, they wanted to basically not bill the patient for a copay. I strongly discouraged it. And I, of course, was an employee of the office, uh, but I did strongly encourage that. And I gave them all of the information, the legal requirements. But at the end of the day, it was the provider's responsibility to do that. Um, and so... Once I left that practice, I still hope that they continue to take my advice and continue to collect copays. But that was one thing that they thought in their minds was, okay, if I do this, I might lose all my patients because they're not going to want to pay. But let me tell you guys, if your patients feel that way, doesn't matter where they go, if that practice they go to is following the law and doing what they're supposed to be doing, then they're going to be doing the same thing. The patient's not going to find a provider to see them. So at the end of the day, the patient knows they have this responsibility. So if it's a routine thing you're doing because you're afraid you're going to lose patients or you want them to come to you because they know, okay, you're not, you're going to let my copay slide. You're not going to bill me. They're going to be like, okay, I'm going to go here rather than over here. And that is equivalent of trying to induce the patient to come to you over another practice or facility. Now let me jump back to all of my legal acts and laws and all the all that stuff I was talking about earlier. So maybe you've heard of the False Claims Act. So what is the False Claims Act? Well, it prevents or forbids that you submit a false or fraudulent claim to the government. I'm going to read directly from one of the excerpts from the False Claims Act, mentioning that, of course, someone who knowingly makes uses or causes to be made or used a false record or statement material to an obligation to pay or transmit money 
or property to the government, or knowingly conceals, or knowingly and improperly avoids, or decreases an obligation to pay, or transmit money, or property to the government. Now, I know that's a lot of legal jargon, but in essence, it has to do with the money that is owed. You're taking that responsibility on um, as the assignment of benefits. And so by misleading or knowingly concealing or not reporting um, the patient's uh, payment of that copay that is a requirement with their contract or with their policy, that can be construed as that. And that's not the only part of the False Claims Act that alludes to that or justifies that act as being fraudulent. So I highly recommend you get out those laws and you understand them. Um, if you're, of course, a practice manager or you, you work in the, uh, in the facility and you need to understand these things, obviously, if you're a compliance officer, you definitely need to know these laws. Um, you need to know them really well. Uh, so those are some of the things I wanted to point out. So get to know um, the civil monetary penalties law get to know the anti-kickback statute, and get to know the False Claims Act. Now, there are specific times where, yes, you are prohibited from actually charging a patient for a copay. And one of the specific areas I wanted to highlight was the QMB. That's the Qualified Medicare Beneficiary Program. So this provides Medicaid coverage for those who have Medicare Part A for your facility, your hospital coverage, and Part B for your, of course, outpatient your doctor's visits and some of your other outpatient services. Um, so basically, you don't you are prohibited from charging them because they are, of course, part of this program. Now, this does include all original Medicare and Medicare Advantage providers and suppliers, not only those that accept Medicaid. They cannot charge individuals who are enrolled in this QMB program for that cost sharing. So basically. That's going to be your co-pays, deductibles, and co-insurance. So maybe you're wondering what's the best way to understand this, or how do I know if a patient is involved in this? So it's order to identify that, and this is all found in the handout that I'm going to put in my show notes from Medicare directly. Um, a lot of the, all the rules and guidelines that are put in place for this QMB program. Um, so um, effective November 2017, uh, providers and suppliers can use the Medicare eligibility data um, that you get when you check eligibility for a patient, right, um, to verify their status. And I found this to be true myself, of course, whenever I worked in the office and I was checking eligibility for patients. That's the first thing I looked for. If they had Medicare and a supplement, I would, of course, I would look through both policies to make sure they weren't QMB status, right? Um, I would make sure that I had all the information I needed to verify that before I would, of course, charge a patient for coinsurance, deductible, and all that, right? That's what we have to make sure we, we do. We need to understand the patient's policy. And specifically, if you're, um, of course, billing for a Medicaid product, uh, depending on your state, most Medicaid eligibilities will have all that information in there. Uh, and they'll even tell you what type of Medicaid policy they have in a lot of states. So there's different programs that they're eligible for. And within those programs, they have requirements for those policies. Now, let's say, of course, you are a patient who, of course, is a qualified uh, Medicare beneficiary. You're a QMB member. You know that you're also given information from your insurance, and they identify this information for you, so you know. And when you apply or enroll in this program, they go through all the information with you. They look at your age. They look at any qualifying disability. Um, they look at other things, your income, 
um, and resources and things like that. So even just to get qualified for this, you have to be in a position where you need that assistance. And so healthcare providers know this as well. They know that if that patient is in this program, it's because they truly have a need and they can't pay these co-pays, deductibles and co-insurances. They've entered into this program for a reason, and so they understand that. So it's really important to understand the program so we don't do anything, obviously, illegal um, when, we're, when we're billing. Um, it's really important that we understand these, these laws and um, these, these programs. Um, so there is, within all of that, those documents that I'm going to attach, there's a lot of, of information. So read it carefully, and if you don't understand anything, you know, reach out to your local MAC carrier. Um, read, um, you know, as much as you can um, on uh, CMS's website. Uh, get that information uh, to your physician, to your practice, those that need that information, so we can make sure that we're billing appropriately. So, if you are, though, enrolled in a, or if a patient is enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan, then, of course, they're not going to be billed when they receive a plan-covered service from an in-network provider as long as the coverage guidelines are met. So for Medicare Advantage plans, they, of course, have to be an in-network provider. Um, so patients should be aware, and they've been given that information, they understand that if they see a provider who is out of network and they have an Advantage plan, that doesn't apply to them. And, of course, if they are seeing a Medicare, a regular Medicare, of a traditional Medicare a provider who is an opt-out provider, then they can be billed. For those instances. So they want to be aware of that. Just some things to keep in mind. So while we're keeping all of this information in mind that we've learned today, we want to remember that we always want to check our payer policies and information from other all the payers that we build to because they have their own requirements and they have their own documentation on this matter. Now one other thing I wanted to point out is I did actually verify too in my research that United Healthcare has information on this as well. So they actually list themselves um, in their provider administrative guide that they give examples of potential fraudulent, wasteful, or abusive billing, and they do include waivers of copays or choosing not to collect copays or deductibles um, as part of that. And they do list that to help prevent and detect the potential fraud, waste, and abuse, they have sources that they use. Um, they use, of course, other healthcare providers, plan members, uh, task forces from federal and state regulation, regulatory agencies, news media, and such. Um, and they monitor and audit prevention and detection by certain uh, ways as well. And one of those is, of course, data mining queries. They look at abnormal billing patterns. Um, and they do, of course, retrospective detection. Uh, they look at post-payment data analytics payment error analytics and such. So they have safeguards in place and they do watch for these things. These insurance companies want to make sure that those that enter into an agreement with them are also holding up their end of the bargain as well. So be aware that uh, if you're thinking that you're in the clear and I can do this and I'm not going to get in trouble for this, be aware that there are safeguards in place. There are audits. The OIG is on it. Uh, they are very aware that this happens this was, of course, back in 1994, like I mentioned. 1994 was when they put that um, in their documents to show us what they look at when they look at specific fraud alerts. So that is part of it. 
So if you work for a provider or you have this issue in your practice, please, please, please use the resources uh, and the authoritative guidance that I have in my show notes and, and use that. Um, show your provider, show your office staff, this is where it's coming from. It's a legal issue and we don't want to be caught up in that. And there are um, specific cases that have been reported on, specific issues with, uh, you know, providers and facilities being fined, lots of money, and even there has been um, imposed uh, sentences um, for certain providers for being involved in these practices. So be aware that it's very serious matter. We want to understand these laws. We want to understand our insurance policies, and we want to make sure our patients are very aware of their responsibilities and that we, of course, inform them of our responsibilities towards them as a provider as well that we have their best interests at heart, we want to take care of them, and we understand that we have to follow legal regulations as well as they do. So we're all on the same page. Make it a a friendly uh, interaction. Make it something that they understand. And of course, like I mentioned, we have these copay census programs available. So if they are truly in a financial need, we want to help them to get the assistance that they need. And there is a lot of assistance out there. Well, it's always our goal here at the Life as a Coder podcast to inspire and educate. And as I always say, knowledge is power. Uh, don't give up on coding. Keep learning and keep growing. This has been Jennifer McNamara with the Life as a Coder. And I want to thank our sponsors, OncoSpark and Highland Productions. Until next time. I want to thank our sponsors over at OncoSpark for designing a platform that streamlines and standardizes the authorization process. As we know, the barriers for practices and patients due to prior authorizations are a clinical and a clerical issue. This new tool, OthParency, optimizes staff and resources while decreasing the time that a patient must wait. This platform will seamlessly integrate with your practice management system and your electronic health record, alerting you to expiring authorizations or order changes. Authparency's reports can also be used for internal development as well as payer and pharma accountability. Direct insurance verification and specialty pharmacy hub enrollment are standard modules in the platform too. So jump on over to oncospark.com. That's www.oncospark.com and look at their technology solutions. We're also going to put the information in our show notes. Schedule your demo for Off Parency today and get started with this amazing tool. Thanks for joining the Life as a Coder podcast. Please feel free to rate or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other healthcare professionals just like you. Join us next Wednesday for another episode. We'll catch you then. I want to thank our sponsors over at OncoSpark for designing a platform that streamlines and standardizes the authorization process. As we know, the barriers for practices and patients due to prior authorizations are a clinical and a clerical issue. This new tool, OthParency, optimizes staff and resources while decreasing the time that a patient must wait. This platform will seamlessly integrate with your practice management system and your electronic health record, alerting you to expiring authorizations or order changes. 
Off-parentage reports can also be used for internal development as well as payer and pharma accountability. Direct insurance verification and specialty pharmacy hub enrollment are standard modules in the platform too. So jump on over to oncospark.com. That's www.oncospark.com and look at their technology solutions. We're also going to put the information in our show notes. Schedule your demo for Off Parency today and get started with this amazing tool.